This is John Anderson Direct with Rebecca Heinrichs. Rebecca, who I've known for some years, is a senior fellow at the Washington, D.C.-based think tank, the Hudson Institute. She's a prolific writer on matters related to national security and American political dynamics. She provides her analysis regularly on major cable news programs. Uh, She and her husband and five children live in Virginia, and I think her insights are extremely valuable. Rebecca, thank you so very much for your time. It's uh, good to see you at a personal level, uh, albeit from the other side of the world. Can we come to the Ukrainian situation? They say that truth is the first casualty in any war, and it's hard to get accurate information, or is it? This is perhaps the first war that's played out so much on the internet, social media. We've had an explosion in what we know and what we can see, and that horrifies us, and in many ways has galvanised us. On the other hand, there's a lot of misinformation being peddled, particularly by Russia, but not only Russia. Can you give us your views on how you think the war is currently playing out and where it might be headed? Sure. Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be able to discuss some of these things with you this evening. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a real pleasure. We've we've talked in the past, and so it's nice to be able to have these discussions. Although I'm sorry, it's under such um, unfortunate world uh, circumstances. So I, I I think first of all, I think that's an accurate characterization that this is. I mean, we are we're kind of living through this information warfare, and so everything that we see on social media, I've been hesitant myself to share. Um, images and videos, uh, even coming out from the Ukrainian side, uh, a side that I think um, that, of course, I, I want to prevail um, in this war, but uh, but hesitant to share them just because I, I don't I don't know the veracity of them. And obviously, Ukraine is trying to do its very best to um, to win the information war as well, that, that they are the ones that are um, fighting valiantly and and um, doing doing very well. And the Russians not only are not doing well, but the Russians are suffering from low troop morale, um, that there are attempted desertions and, um, you know, on and on it goes, logistical problems and all of those sorts of things. Many, many of those things I think are are, are true, but to, it's, it's just impossible in the fog of war, in the middle of information warfare to know what is in fact truly um, uh, accurate in terms of what's going on. But the way I see it, um, the, uh, the, the Ukrainians are, are, are doing very well at denying the Russians true um, and clear military um, victories. But the, uh, the, and the, the Russians are having a hard time with their logistics, but um, I'm not one of these people who thinks that in the end, the, the Ukrainians will be able to, to achieve um, uh, operational victories. I think that the Russians just have, have such, just have, can outnumber and outgun the Ukrainians that they can just keep the weapons coming. And then I know that we'll get to the China problem as well. But if the Chinese throw in with the, with the, the Russians as well, then we have a, a really serious problem on that front. So, um, but I'll just leave it on this to, to, to close out this answer is I do think that the Ukrainians can ultimately prevail in a strategic sense if they can continue um, uh, carrying out um, Russian casualties. Uh, you know, the more body bags that go home to the Russians, the more that the Russian people will oppose this war. All those things help the Ukrainians. The more the West can continue to arm the Ukrainians, they can continue to put up a good fight and position themselves better um, when Vladimir Putin um, finally is ready for an off-ramp. Of course, I don't see that um, in the in the near future, but, but that is the goal. So, um, you know, I, I think we're still in the middle of a long slog uh, and, and not really near the end of this very unfortunate war. Well, that's uh, not a pleasant uh, contemplation, I have to say. We have to ask ourselves some hard questions. Could we have done more in the West to prevent this? I am uh, always fascinated by the contrast between the lack of wisdom that followed the First World War uh, when uh, such punitive arrangements were put in place to try and make the Germans, you know, what was uh, Clemenceau said, we'll squeeze the German orange until the pip squeaks. And the result was a resentful but clever and innovative people 
who did unmentionable and unbelievable things and created the Second World War. The, sec the Second World War itself was very different. America deserves huge credits, often not given it, for reconstructing Europe. Think the Marshall Plan. Think everything that went into it. it wasn't just money. It was an insistence on reform. Think MacArthur's enlightened approach to Japan, which is now one of our major allies. Come the collapse of the Berlin Wall, Rebecca, it seems to me that perhaps the West, rather smugly, perhaps a bit too much hubris, didn't think through what it was doing, could have acted more responsibly. There's a few commentators around who are not at all sympathetic to Russia or sympathetic to what Russia is doing, but who are saying, we in the West perhaps haven't been very wise in the way that we've handled this. What are your perspectives? Somebody thinks a lot about these things. Yeah, I... Um... The way I've kind of treated that question, it's a it's a it's a necessary question. Um, I I have found it sort of unhelpful to 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 debate it publicly right now in the midst of um, um, of the way the war is unfolding in Ukraine. Um, of course, I'm happy to to discuss it now, but there's a lot of just very um, energetic debate going on in social media between scholars on this subject, and. Um, you know, obviously, I think that the, the most, I think everybody would agree that that what we're watching unfold right now is is completely Vladimir Putin's fault um, in the sense of he's the one that made this terrible decision. And But the short answer to your question is, yes, I think that there was, there was plenty the West could have done differently and, and could have handled more wisely. And um, uh, Bob Gates has written about this uh, uh, very eloquently that there was things that the United States could have done, that the timing of different NATO, bringing different NATO allies into the NATO alliance um, could have been better. Um, and that there could have been a, a, a um, yeah, less less hubristic response to the Russian Federation in trying to to see reforms and and reach out and reach out to the Russians. Um, but but ultimately, you know, I, I have a hard time agreeing or being persuaded with those who say that really even in, you know, the last since, um, well, since the invasion, since the last invasion, when Russia invaded Crimea, um, you know, the Russians have been accusing the West and accusing NATO of, of acting provocatively, of, of arming, you know, when the Poles and the Romanians took on U.S. missile defense sites. The Russians were upset about that. But all of that only happened after the Russians invaded Crimea. Um, it, it didn't happen before then when Poland really started getting serious about arming itself and, and U.S. NATO deployments going to Poland. Um, so the Russians really have been disingenuous with their complaints about, about NATO. Um, it's very hard to argue that, that, that NATO countries have acted in a way that's been aggressive towards Russia. Um, but, but the Russians really do suffer from this, I think, deep-seated paranoia about what the West's intents are uh, towards Russia. And it's, it's been impossible to overcome in trying to build trust between the United States or Russia. The Obama administration tried it. The Trump administration kind of hobbled along to try it. But then you had the Russia collusion accusations going on, which made that very difficult. And then you had the Biden administration that was really determined to, to try to reach out to the Russians again. And none of that worked because the Russians really were not interested in, um, in coming to, you know, understandings between the United States and the Russians. So a long history where mistakes, um, uh, I think, were the, the United States and the West made mistakes along the way, but really in the last, you know, decade or so or more, um, it, it has been an intractable problem. And the fault of that really, I think, is at the feet of the, of the Russians. Interesting conundrum for the Russians if you stop and think about it, isn't it? On the one hand, the, weeks, the West is so weak and so divided that they're not a threat, they won't stand up. On the other, they're so dangerous that we have to move to forestall this horror before they take us over. This deep loathing of the West in Russia, which is not new, seems to me to be something that we miss in the West. I think that that is exactly right. I mean, and, and you, um, I mean, it really is a deep loathing. And if you listen to, I'm always fascinated when, when, when Putin does speak out and he gives these speeches, you listen to what he's very, I mean, he lies, you know, he's not an honest guy, but, um, but, but he does give us some insight into how he's thinking. And he really does see himself 
as um, defending this, you know, being uh, he's like a you know defender of Christian ideals is 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 what he says. The Russian Orthodox Church, and you have this just um, you know degenerate West. He loathes the West and everything that it stands for. These are the arguments that that he makes. These are the arguments that he made before he went into to invade Ukraine. Um, uh, and and you know people in the West sort of discount those things. They don't, they don't understand it, doesn't make sense to them, and so they can't wrap their minds around it. You know, what does he really want? Well, these are the arguments that he's making. Um, and, you know, that's, that, I think, failing to understand it, to take Putin kind of seriously about some of the things he was saying is, is part of the problem and why it really did take the West by surprise. There is this, you know, I think the United States is not alone in, in suffering from this, but it, I keep talking about this, this mere imaging. You know, we we think, why wouldn't why wouldn't everybody think the way we do? And um, that kind of thinking really leads to some major errors in in assessing what other countries are going to do and how they're going to behave. And I think that the West really missed this with with Putin. They really couldn't imagine him doing this for these reasons. And And here we are. So once the conflict had broken out, can we come to the issue? Um, Putin warned quite early that if the West attempted to interfere, and we'll come to the question of what interference might look like in a moment, with his invasion of the Ukraine, that it would lead to consequences you've never seen. Now, that was widely taken to mean um, that he was alluding to, to nuclear capabilities uh, and the possibility he might use them, and uh, their nuclear forces were supposedly uh, put on readiness, whatever that means. Um, U.S. intelligence in early February warned that Putin was planning a major nuclear weapons exercise that very month to intimidate uh, NATO, uh, but instead he invaded Ukraine. What do you think of Biden's response in the sense, I can't help wondering, President Biden, I can't help wondering whether in fact it didn't work. You know, from Putin's point of view, we, we, we called these their bluff. We said we'd use... Look out, we'll use nukes. And immediately America made a plane. No, we're not putting troops on the ground. We're not going to get involved. We won't do no-fly zones. Did it have the desired effect in it? Does it, second, two big questions in one, does it raise the prospect that, as some people in this country are putting it, that cruelly it looks like the West is prepared to give Ukraine just enough to support, to struggle on for as long as possible, very cruelly, without the prospect of victory at the end? I I think you are really on to something. I've I've just written an essay about this. It's not yet published where I say that, you know, I I'm very sympathetic with President Biden and his team's desire to avoid a direct military confrontation between the United States, between a NATO country and the Russians. Um, but but because of this strong desire this to avoid direct military confrontation, the the impact has been that that President Biden is incredibly risk averse in general. And, and this idea, there was, I thought it was very revealing when, when President Biden tweeted out and he said that there would be no, you know, US, um, the United States would not fight a war with Russia in Ukraine because that would end up being World War III. That, that idea that, that anything that the United States might do to, to escalate in any way beyond what we're doing would inevitably lead to World War III is just a myth. There's no evidence that supports that. But, but if you believe that and you internalize that, you self-deter. And when we talk about in crisis management, um, that um, the country, in, 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 a, in a very serious, intense crisis, the country that is willing to escalate is the country that's going to pocket the gains. I mean, it seems obvious when you say it that way, but but the, the, the effect of the way President Biden has responded to this is every time a Biden official comes out and says, we're not going to, we're not going to provide real-time targeting. We're not going to provide ISR to the Ukrainians in this particular um, uh, scenario because then the Russians might accuse us as being a co-belligerent. So we're not going to do it because that could be provocative. You know, they say that or they say we're not going to do a no-fly zone. We're not going to allow the Poles to send in their MiG fighter jets. We're not going to do all these things. And every time they've done that, the Russians have not responded by de-escalating, which of course is the intent. The Russians respond by escalating. 
they increase the, the number of things they're willing to target. They increase the humanitarian suffering. They increase their nuclear saber rattling. They don't decrease their nuclear saber rattling. And, and so it's almost as if, not even almost, I, I, I do suspect, unfortunately, that the Biden administration's response to the Russian sab nuclear saber rattling really has confirmed exactly the assumptions that the Russians are operating on, which is that we are so terrified of the Russians crossing that nuclear threshold that it paralyzes us um, to, to a degree that we don't, we don't do things that are, I think are perfectly reasonable and still at the lower levels of, of escalation that we could, where we could really truly be helping the Ukrainians um, again, have this ultimate kind of strategic victory where they can, they can cause so much, they can make it so difficult on the Russians that the Russians finally do look for an off ramp and some kind of solution. So I, I, yeah, I mean, I think that there is a concern that unless I always hold out hope for my government, they can turn things around. But unless they do turn things around, it sure seems like they aren't really willing to do what is necessary to to allow the Zelensky government and Ukraine to to defend themselves for as long as they have the will to do so. This really raises in my mind something that Neil Ferguson said to me in one of these conversations once that the greatest threat of all to the West's freedom lay in the West's loathing and rejection of its own past, its ignorance of its own history. Contrast that with, or we'll keep that in mind, and remember that Victor Davis Hanson has spoken incredibly powerfully about the lessons of World War II, which were that, as he saw it, what should have been kept to a series of ugly, ugly, but nonetheless border skirmishes, grew into the horror of the Second World War because Germany and then Japan believed that the West lacked the will to fight, lacked the capacity to fight. You know, the lesson being that if you don't understand a bully, if you don't understand your history, which is replete with bullies and pathological murderers, they're everywhere. The 20th century is not so long ago. If we forget those lessons, we truly are in danger of repeating them. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I know I couldn't anyway, Rebecca, but what worries me so much is that we're so into self-loathing, so, and that that arises, it's made possible because we don't know our history. We place everything that we actually really deep down value at risk. Well, this is why, though I, I am somebody who's very interested in national security policy and international relations, I keep, I, I, I can't get away from the domestic conversation that is happening in the United States and it about, I mean, because it's a very um, serious and consequential um, argument that the American people are having with one another about who we are. Is the United States today worth defending? And, 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 and the answer, you know, that there's folks on the far right, the political spectrum and the far left, the political spectrum are, are, are in agreement, but for different reasons that the answer is no. And, um, and, and those on the right say our problems are so great domestically that we have to turn inward and these problems abroad are just too great. And, and besides our governing class is, is just um, so confused and wrongheaded that we can't trust them to get it right anyway. And then of course the left sort of has this long running um, blame America. Everything's America's fault. You know, everything's America's fault. We're the ones that have wielded power irresponsibly, et cetera. And so, um, uh, you know, it's never our adversaries fault for their aggression at something that the United States did. So both sides kind of suffer from this, but for different reasons. And when you take that and you combine it with failing to remember the lessons of history, that there's always going to be a bully, an adversary who's willing to, or who wants to take power from you, wants to take political leverage from you, wants to have greater influence in the world, but they're going to do it on their terms based on what they believe is right, which are very contrary to the West's. So you take those two things and, and you have a, a terrible, toxic, tragic scenario playing out before you. Um, but you know, I, I believe that the United States is still, uh, American preeminence is still worth fighting for. And there still is a good number of people kind of that have not fallen on either side who still believe that. 
the challenge is to get enough people to make the right arguments and get into positions of power that that can have the cultural confidence and the surety and the moral clarity to know that you you we the the Russians and the Chinese are both happy to step in if the United States steps away, both in Europe and Asia, and to collaborate together to do that and and to undermine the U.S.-led order um, with our friends, um, of course, in the NATO alliance and elsewhere. So um, it's an astute observation. I think Victor Davis Hanson is exactly right, and and that's why it's 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 you know the those of us who would like to just be talking about national security and international relations, I think, can't afford not to pay attention to the domestic debate because it is directly tied to how the United States is going to be able to prevail, I think, through this turmoil we're going through now. And and I think this is just, you know, Ukraine's one um, culminating moment, but there will be more. There are others, flashpoints, I think, in the world that are going to pop up, too, after after or even during the Ukraine crisis. Well, we, we, you've seen that escalation, really, from, uh, uh, you know, the warnings from America crosses red line in Syria, nothing happened. You then saw um, the Chinese respond by building bases all over the South China Seas and insisting that their Chinese uh, waters win. The international courts, you know, the Chinese rattle on forever about respecting international laws and rules when it suits them, but not when it doesn't. Uh, and in this country, one of the things that I hope my fellow Australians will be a bit more alert to, because I heard, for example, a conservative say the other day, oh, the Americans need our bases here, so they won't let us down if something goes wrong. They're missing a lot of what is happening in America, it seems to me, because there's a suggestion now coming from, as you've just alluded to, from the right as well as the left, that America should withdraw, look inward, not be involved so much on the global stage. And I've been quite surprised by the reemergence of that talk it's quite chilling to a mid-sized power like Australia that is going to be very dependent upon international alliances. If what our prime minister is calling the arc of autocracy is not to supplant what might be called a liberal rules-based order that was put in place really largely by the Americans after the Second World War and which has served countries like Australia and ironically, China very well. No, I, that's exactly right. Um, you know, and I, this is, um, it, it, again, it's a, it's a challenge. Now I don't, I, I still, I don't despair it. I still think that there's, um, if you look at polling, you know, you have these American thought leaders on the right who are, you know, talking about America withdrawal and the United States can't, doesn't, can't speak with the moral authority and we don't have the power and we have too many problems at home and we have to withdraw. But whenever you pull the American people, the American people still understand the Russians are terrible. They want to do more to help. Um, and so that is at least a little, a little bit of a, an optimistic data point. Um, but, but I wouldn't take it for granted, um, especially whenever you talk um, uh, to folks there at home is, you know, there is this sense of, um, you know, what are the, what are our allies, um, what are they doing to maintain the health of their own societies, and and are they worth also defending? And then are they defending themselves? Are they investing in their own security? And if they're, if they're not going to be investing in their own security, and they're not going to be doing what is necessary to provide to um, a cooperative effort to deter China, for instance, in the case of Australia, then then why should the United States, when we're kind of this tired power who has all these domestic problems at home? And, um, and so one of the things that I have found to be an interesting pattern um, is that those countries that do invest very much in their own um, in their own national security and have their own vibrancy um, and national identity. I'll take, for instance, Poland. Poland, for instance, still. Um, it's a it's a country that still enjoys a lot of support um, among in the American people. Whenever they see they've committed to their two percent for NATO collective defense, and and they and they kind of haven't fallen for um, a lot of this um, sort of um, liberal internationalism, where you're you're kind of submitting your own national sovereignty to these um, liberal international organizations. That's not something that that the Poland has done, and it's it's something that I think that the Trump administration really brought to the fore. This idea of shoring up your own national sovereignty and taking and being confident 
in um, in what makes your country unique and and good and worth fighting for. So so there is some hope. I think that there that the American people can be galvanized and 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 pay attention to. There are great, wonderful countries that are different than ours, but are are doing their part and and are defending themselves and want to be part of defending and protecting um, this world order that we have all benefited from. Because the alternative is far worse, as 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 imperfect as this has been. You know, like I said, a, a China-led order will be. Um, not what the West wants. Australia probably knows it better than anybody else with um, the terrible beating it's taken during COVID with these sanctions, essentially, that China has put on it and these 14 points that China's demanding the Australians make before they relieve some of these um, trading sanctions. And um, it's, it's, a very, it'd be a, it's a very different, uh, very different set of values and principles that other countries would have to abide by that is unique to the Chinese Communist Party, and and that's not something I think any of us want. But it's not we can't. It's not going to happen by default that we keep it at bay and and can maintain um, the values and principles that each of our countries uh, wants to to live under for the flourishing of our own people. Yes, I understand what you're saying, and it does often occur to me that the left, which is so incredibly critical of our culture in this country, and it seems to parallel what's happening in yours, with their current policy objectives, ought to recognise that if the liberal global order that we've been used to, the rules-based system, the dominance of uh, a commitment to freedom and freedom of speech and expression and what have you, if that's broken by the arc of autocracy, they'll be the losers. Uh, Nobody uh, in those communities seems to care very much about the pronouns you put in the front of your name or, uh, uh, you know, uh, beating yourself up over energy policy. Uh, and people need to be, just to be blunt, a damn side more sort of hard-nosed. Uh, you wrote recently, I thought this was beautifully put and very powerfully put, we have theatre-range nuclear weapons too, and they, the Russians, better believe we're ready and willing to employ them in our defence can I ask, firstly, what are precisely, for our listeners, theatre-range nuclear weapons? And, and that was a strong statement. You were saying a bully only understands one language, as I understand it. That's it, that's right. Um, so that, that particular quote is um, what I was hoping would be something that would come out of... Um, a, a response coming out of the U.S. government in response to Russia's nuclear saber-rattling. That... Um, a little bit of background. The, the Russians think about nuclear weapons differently than we do. I mean, this kind of goes back to what we're talking about, sort of first principles, how, how we think about things, our own culture, our own strategic culture and war fighting, what we value, the risks we're willing to take, et cetera. And, and the United States, you know, we think about nuclear weapons as not war fighting weapons. We think about them as weapons for deterrence. And but it's sort of a paradox, right? Deterrence works because it has to be credible in the minds of your enemy that you are willing to use them if they cross these these lines, and you're willing to use them in defense of your people, and 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 your and the um, well-being of your people. The Russians think about nuclear weapons. They've kind of been watching the West and how squeamish we've been about war fighting and getting bogged down in other kinds of conflicts, and and obviously about just nuclear employment in general. And so they've adopted this, that's this idea, it was in the last administration had a document that called the Nuclear Posture Review that talked about this, where the Russians have this idea of escalating to de-escalate, that in a purely non-nuclear conflict, like what we're watching play out in Ukraine, that the Russians might consider uh, detonating, launching, deploying, and using a low-yield theater-range nuclear weapon with the idea being it would terrify the West. The West would not respond in kind in order to get the Russians to not retaliate again. That instead the, the US and NATO would simply say, forget it, take it, take Ukraine. What else do you want, Moldova, um, Finland? And you know that the idea would be, it would be so horrifying, the thought of this lower yield theater range nuclear weapon that, that we would, let Russia just pocket the gains. It's escalated, de-escalate. Of course, my my argument has been we've got to convince them that that is not what would happen, or that's exactly what's going to happen. 
And so in order to do that, you have to convey that we also have proportional responses available and we're willing to use them and we're not going to back down. And then only if we convince them of that, do we deter him from doing it, him being Vladimir Putin. And, and so that's what I mean. You know, a lot of people think of, you know, nuclear weapons and they think immediately mutually assured destruction. You're swapping intercontinental ballistic missiles that are going to blow up whole cities in your, in your countries. And that's kind of the Cold War idea um, uh, of mutually assured destruction. But, but really, modern nuclear employment threats are different today. And the Russians have been amassing a huge number of these theater range, lower yield nuclear weapons. And they do not allow the United States to even discuss them in negotiations for arms control treaties. So they're totally out of the bounds of treaties. They're not controlled by treaty at all. And they outnumber the United States is 10 to one. And, and so what I've argued is the United States should not be overly alarmed by these threats, but we should take them soberly and not assume that the Russians are bluffing and instead demonstrate resolve to convince them that that would be a grave mistake for them to, to use a nuclear weapon in this, in this terrible yet still conventional uh, war in, in Ukraine. So uh, you just made the comment that the Russians have a lot more of them than the Americans. It raises the issue of the capability of the American defense forces. We assume that they are still technologically and in many other ways, including battle-hardened, extremely powerful and capable. That's what the rest of the world wants to assume. Is that a reasonable assumption? It is, thankfully. Um, I, I would not want your listeners to leave here just being horrified that, that there's nothing that we could do to respond. But we, we do, thankfully. And, and actually, in the, in the, the last um, administration that, you know, President Trump um, got into so much trouble for saying things and doing things that kind of the national security establishment thought would be so provocative and so dangerous. But now we look back and think, my goodness, I'm so glad he did that. Um, but but this is this is an example, okay? So the the we we had taken our our low yield um, submarine launch ballistic missiles. Uh, we we had we had removed them so that we only had conventional ones. And and President Trump said we need something. Well, he didn't say, it, but his team said it, and, and and the president agreed and endorsed it that we need something reintroduced um, back out into the theater that. And we, and we have to do it quickly, where we would have a proportional response. Because if we don't have a credible proportional, what I mean by that is something we would realistically use. We're not going to use an ICBM against a, a, a military target in, in Russia if they're using a lower yield you know, nuclear weapon in, in Ukraine. We, it has to be believable. How would we retaliate? So you have to have something of the right yield that could that's close enough and quick enough that we could respond with it. And the Trump administration said it's going to take way too long to negotiate anything land-based in Europe with the Europeans and NATO and everything. So what's the quickest way to do it? Well, you just you can get a low-yield nuclear weapon, put it back on our submarines, on our ballistic missile submarines, and get it back out to sea. And they did it. By 2018, they got them back out to sea, and they're out there. And the Russians know that they're out there. Now, there's other capabilities that that um, U.S. Strategic Command wants also. They, they don't want just those, that particular weapon. They want other kinds, um, uh, cruise missiles that you can put on bombers. They want the sea launch cruise missile as well that have low yield, dial dial yield capability as well. And, and my hope is that the Trump administration or the Biden administration kind of looks at the situation unfolding before us and says, listen, this is not, we might want to go down a fewer numbers of nuclear weapons and we don't want to add to different kinds and variety. But unfortunately, reality has struck and we need to be looking at the kinds of capabilities that we need to field, not because we want to employ these things, but because we've got to convince the Russians and the Chinese for that matter, that we are not going to tolerate any kind of nuclear employment. And to do that, we've got to have a whole toolkit full of different options that can be critical, credible in a variety of different contingencies that, that either of those nuclear peers might, um, might, might throw at us. And, and so, that, so the, the short answer is nobody, I wouldn't be overly worried about it, but it is something that I would take very seriously. And, and it's definitely not a time to be disarming or failing to modernize the U.S. nuclear deterrent or for NATO to be going weak need on these kinds of things. Now is the time to be demonstrating resolve. 
Talking of resolve and, and, and looking to the more positive side of the global response, I must say from where I sit, I've been surprised at the speed and the strength and the wide uh, uh, type of sanctions that have been applied and the, the way in which NATO appears to be stepping up. Uh, do you think, uh, what do you think the impact will be on Putin and the Russians? It must be really hurting. Their economy is badly damaged. A lot of those foreign reserves um, that they've uh, not now, they're not going to be able to access. Uh, it, it presumably does weaken the regime. That must be very interesting for China, uh, but it must also, uh, you know, to see their buddy uh, really floundering, um, and I would have thought raises the prospect of the Chinese being quite contemptuous of the Russians. At the same time, what's the impact in Russia, do you think? And will it, in fact, make them even more of a wounded bear and more dangerous? Or do you think there's a chance that Putin will be forced somehow to the negotiating table, the Russians themselves will say, this is enough? Well, there, so there's several scenarios that I'm, I'm kind of trying to keep a track of a, of a grid of the different scenarios. And every day when something else comes out in the news, I try to analyze it and see which, which you know, camp it goes in in my grid about the most likely scenario about how this ends. I'm, I'm um, again, talking about this, this meeting between the Russians and the Chinese in Beijing, you know, that the, the two countries uh, had an agreement that uh, a long an energy agreement, of course, where the two would be energy partners, but also agriculture, and and the reason I bring that up now is because um, if the two countries work together and collaborate together, and the Chinese aren't spooked by what's going on with Russia, China can soften the blow for the Russians, not not in the in the short term perhaps, but in the long term, and and so that may have been taken into account before Putin decided to to launch this this terrible invasion where he might be he might have already baked in all of these terrible sanctions the that perhaps the west would respond in some fashion now i think it surprised him i, I think it had to i'm i generally um try to have as clear eyed uh, assessment of the situation as i can and i will say i've been very surprised by germany's response um as well even if they were a little bit late um, coming to the table, I've been surprised at how willing they have been to uh, levy sanctions against the Russians, commit to, to their own defense and increase their defense spending and make sure that the Ukrainians continue to be armed with the right kind of lethal weapons that they need. Um, so, so it depends on this kind of dynamic between China and Russia. And if China really is committed to the Russian offense against Ukraine, and if the Chinese had really already considered that this might be the way it goes, and they're still supportive of it for, for reasons that they think serve their interests. Um, but, but I am encouraged by NATO's willingness to, to step up and I'm again, disappointed in my own government because it seems on a variety of issues the United States was still um, one of the last countries or one of the countries behind willing to do something. Even Lithuania and Latvia, these two small Baltic countries, obviously at great risk of this war spilling over or um, not a zero percent risk of this war spilling over and impacting them. They were willing to send these anti-aircraft, the Stinger missiles before the U.S. government was, send them to Ukraine. Um, the Poles, much more forward leaning, leaning and trying to get these these jets, these fighter jets to the Ukrainians. And the French foreign minister had a, had a very nice, I think, um, calm and firm statement about NATO being a nuclear alliance in response to Russia's saber rattling, which is more, which was more forward leaning than, than a U.S. official was willing to say at the time. Um, so, I'm, I am pleased to see NATO stepping up. I'm a little bit concerned that it kind of feels a little bit unwieldy there. It's not, I, I wouldn't say who is our leader right now. I, I would like to say it's the United States leading the way, but I've just listed several things where the United States was one of the last countries to, to agree to a particular initiative. And so the, the unwieldiness makes me a little bit uncomfortable because it, it would, it would, um, it, if we were more on the same page and and making decisions together in a in a more public fashion together, I think it would 
um, it would, you know, because I am a little, I'm a little bit concerned about unintentional escalation as well. And if other countries start getting frustrated with the slowness of the United States, then they might start taking more provocative actions on their own. And that's when we have a major problem with the entire NATO alliance. But, but, um, but to end on a on an encouraging note for that question, I I am very pleased. It does. It seems as though NATO is not brain dead, as President Emmanuel Macron once. Um, uh, said that that he thought NATO was headed in that direction, but uh, it is certainly alive and well, and and has the great potential to to revive itself as a great political and military alliance. There's a couple of questions that arise out of that for me. If Germany were to carry the day, so to speak, and come through with a doubling of its defence spending, that would make them the third biggest defence spender because the German economy is very strong, very strong, despite the challenges now they face on the energy front, and uh, I suspect history will le be less than kind to Angela Merkel because of the, you know, the, the dangers she exposed the country to. I don't think there's any other way of putting it. But if they were to step up, that would make them the third largest spender on defence in the world after America and China, which would be astounding. Two questions, and they're related. Firstly, it's not enough just to spend money on defence. You actually have to be a people who believe in your culture and are prepared to stand up. And that includes simple things like young people being prepared to put their life on the line. Uh, you know, as Frank Ferruti says, particularly in the English-speaking West, these de-staturing and sort of attacks on history and so forth look like a history attacks on history, but they're really to convince our young people that our culture is not worth defending anymore. And then you ask... Uh, younger men and women who are in the military to go and defend a culture where half their colleagues, even if they themselves believe in it, don't believe in it. Uh, this is an extraordinary thing. So there's two questions really in that. Do you think um, the Germans and their other NATO friends and those who would be part of NATO will stick to it this time or will they just let it all subside away and go back to sleep? It's a danger that Neil Ferguson's been warning of. And secondly, is there the red-bloodedness, for want of a better term, to say, hang on, you know, we are going to defend ourselves. Look at what the Ukrainians have done. There's only one language that, that, that evil understands, and it's people who are prepared to genuinely stand up. Um, well, I don't know if, for a variety of reasons, I tend to be, I'm always hopeful. <laughs> if, I, if I became a cynic, I wouldn't stay in this business. Um, so I, I, I certainly think that there is great hope um, that that this can stick. Um, but it will, as you say, it, it will require a kind of a national revival of, of a cultural confidence. Germany is worth defending. The good parts, you have to look at who your country is and what it stands for and its and its heritage and the good parts of its heritage that are apt that are that's that are worth defending and and you have to this is why education is so important and um you know young children should be taught that despite your country's past sins and errors and flaws that the country in itself is is worth defending and 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 that there's always an opportunity to chart a course that is good and adds to the the positive parts of your country's history so that that has to be part of the equation it simply has to you're that's why i was an enthusiastic supporter of brexit i saw the uk as having life in it um that it defended its own its its sovereignty and they saw enough um, direction of the European Union they did not agree with, this kind of blending, this idea, this sort of flattening of, of what their, their own national identity was. And that's an oversimplification, but that's what I was really tracking in it from, from my perspective, that, that, good, that was good and, and showed health. Um, in the British people. And, and so, um, and you see that again in Poland, the French are actually pretty good at this. Um, and um, the French like being French and they want to defend France for, for France. And, and as Americans, you know, Americans look at the French and they see all these things that are different in their own kind of democratic society that are different than us. I have a very high tolerance for our democratic friends and allies um, idiosyncrasies that are very different than, than Americans. Um, I've never met an Australian that totally understands the American obsession with the Second Amendment. I have yet to this day. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it, it is something that is, a, that is different and unique about 
about the United States and about Americans. And so I have a I have a very high tolerance when I look at, um, you know, our, our democratic uh, allies and, and the different things about their countries. And I think that that's good. And I think that we need to get back to a place where this that we kind of reject this flattening. And then one more point you brought up that I think is important to kind of flesh out that when I the difference between um, liberal democratic values, free speech, free expression, the dignity of the individual, um, that the people have a say in their government, the government works for them, the people do not work for the government. You know, these ideas that are that are rooted in what it means to be democratic societies. That is a very different thing than the kind of far left leftism, political left that um, identity politics, the LGBTQ identity, uh, racial essentialism, this um, religiosity in fighting climate change, though that conflating that with the very noble um, principles that have defined what it what it is in the English speaking West and just and in the West in general, even our democratic um, um, allies that that are not. Um, these ideas of the dignity of the individual and that the people have a say in these sort of broad-based ideas. When the left conflates those, that's when you're also going to see a continued disgust with people on the political right because they react to that and they say, that is not what I understand to be what it means to be free, freedom. You know, I, there's this one little anecdote I'll, um, I'll share. You know, the... Um, the embassy, the U.S. embassy in Beijing is massive. It's just this huge, massive embassy. And um, on the anniversary of Tiananmen Square, I was told that we didn't have Tank Man, you know, um, displayed on the side of our embassy. We had the pride flag. It was the pride flag and the, and the American flag. And, and you know, and it's a very curious thing. And so, you know, a, a friend asked um, somebody in the embassy and they said, well, why do you, why didn't you put something commemorating the, 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 the freedom, the people who wanted freedom at the day of Tiananmen? They said, well, it would offend the Chinese people. He said, well, you don't think a pride flag offends the Chinese people? But it is this conflating with this, this, this liberalism is a very, um, Leftism is not how most Americans understand the principles that make us American. It's broader based and it's not just this very specific political ideology. And so I think part of this, un this disentangling that we need to have in order to um, fight for American preeminence is disentangling those and saying, no, we are for freedom of speech, the dignity of the individual, due process. That's what makes us American. It's not this very specific left-wing ideology that's focused on uh, identity politics. And, and it's a plague, you know, I think that the, that unfortunately um, started in the United States and is, it has is, um, tried to infect our other Western allies but some countries are doing better at recognizing it and fighting it, but it's going to be a problem that each of us are going to have to, to contend with. Yeah, arguably uh, such horrors as critical race theory in some ways started on the left bank of Paris, it would seem to me, didn't take hold in France, uh, have taken hold in America and the West, and now you've got President Macron saying we actually don't accept these values. <laughs> so. It is a real problem, isn't it? Because it's it's an abandonment of what might be loosely called the golden rule. Uh, it's not about your neighbour. It's about my causes with detached virtue from uh, the people around, you know, an understanding that's attached to people to causes. So unless you agree with me, you are not a virtuous person. It's very uh, intolerant. And, and that, yes. Yeah, extraordinary. That's, yeah, extraordinarily intolerant. Tolerance used to mean that you would accept the dignity of another worth well, a person's worthwhileness, if you like, even if you disagree. Now, in the name of tolerance, you must completely capitulate and agree with everything I say and celebrate it. That's exactly right. It's not tolerance at all. It is it is forced down to your thinking that it's not even enough that you simply um, agree to disagree. You must agree. And it becomes extremely um, totalitarian. And, and so you can see why, and this, this gets back to why, you know, this identity politics, critical race theory, it's extremely divisive. 
It precludes the ability of people in a big country like the United States that's very ethnically diverse, um, very diverse in our uh, um, socioeconomic um, standing, um, very diverse in our, in our faith. And you have to have some common agreement so that we can all say, yes, this is who we are and we're going to live together peace, peacefully. And furthermore, we're going to build communities together and we're going to live together even though we disagree. And that kind of idea, that constructiveness and, and, and really appreciating your neighbor without agreeing with them, it is incompatible with critical race theory and race essentialism and identity politics. That actually divides people and, and racks and stacks people based on this, you know, who's worth what based on their, how, how, um, how much of a victim they are in this, you know, patriarchal um, society, et cetera, that they would say. So it is poison. It is poison for tolerant, open, democratic societies. And, and so we, we must, we must um, take it very seriously and of course do all the things that, that some states are now doing in the United States, which is rooted out of the curriculums. But, um, but it is essential to have, again, this kind of returning to these first principles about um, what, what we set out to do as Americans to begin with, um, rather than destroying uh, what, what we've built thus far. And so it's, it's, you know, it is, it, it, it's an ongoing conversation, but we, there, there are plenty of, um, I think, areas where I can point to, where I can say we are headed in the right direction in various elections we've had lately, but it's going to be years, I think, of the United States figuring this out. If we have time, uh, you know, it, it strikes me really that uh, uh, wokeness, if you like, splatters instantly against the steel turret of an aggressor's tank. Uh, and one of the messages we need, I, I, we have an, an election coming up as I speak here in Australia, and I'm I told, according to the polls, that I'm one of just 10% of the Australian voters who think the issue is national security. And I cannot understand why only 10% of people can't see that. Every other issue you care to talk about that's going to be an election issue depends absolutely on us remaining a free and sovereign country in control of our own destiny. And at that point, Identity politics is splattered, as I say, on the tank of reality, because whether you live in Queensland or Victoria, whether you're male or female, whether you're, you know, a fifth generation Australian or whether you're a first generation Australian, regardless of all of these things, in the end, you're Australian. You want to be secure. You have in common with all of your fellow Australians, that you're, the parallels in your country are obvious. Um, and you want to be a land of opportunity and a land of, 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 of freedom and of some degree of, of, of fairness. Uh, and Americans will often say, well, it's not fair. Our society is, is, is too polarised and too much of a gap between the, the well-off and the not-so-well-off. Those things are true. Nonetheless, you have something called the law that applies to all based on the principles of every life having dignity, as you say. Now, those things are worth fighting for. Wokeism, as I say won't fight, won't stand up. And so I come back to Neil Ferguson's observations to me some years ago that the greatest danger to freedom was the West's lack of its belief in itself. Where do you think China, Rebecca, comes out as they watch this? They, they, perhaps they expected Russia to fold like this, but I would have thought not when they had that conversation between their leaders prior to the games. And we wonder what happened there, but it's pretty easy to speculate. Um, do you think the Chinese ever anticipated Russia folding like this? Firstly, do you think, what do you think they would think about the West's response? You made the comment that the current president of the United States is, uh, in the broad, very risk averse. Uh, we've got the question of Taiwan. They are different, I know. But with all of this in mind, where do you think China is now going in terms of its thinking as it watches what's unfolded over the last three weeks? Well, I, I do think that China has the potential and the determination that um, in combination make them our number one um, adversary, the United States and the West. And um, and when I say that, I explain to people, I say, there's so many threats, how do you pick one? And I say the reason that China is the number one threat is because of the size of their economy and because they've investing their economy in a, in a, in a military 
particularly in particular investments to push the United States out of the Pacific. Those two things. And, and power ultimately comes out of, you know, the West likes to say, it's the power of ideas that, make, that will make us prevail in the end. And I say, no, it's our ideas that make us worth defending, but it's our, it's our submarines that make us able to defend ourselves. And it's our aircraft, it's our Navy, it's our, it's our weapon systems, it's our will to defend ourselves. Um, and it's the size of our economy that enables us to, to build a first class military so that all of our war fighters go into battle. Um, and it's not a fair fight when they do that, that they, will, that they will prevail so much and have such superior capabilities. I mean, that's what I want. And so I, I lament with you that more people don't understand that national security should be the number one issue because all of these problems that we're having domestically, and they're very serious, very, very serious fundamental problems, questions about who we are and, and, and what's worth defending. But, but we can continue to have those debates and have our elections and try to persuade each other and fight for to reclaim our institutions that have been overtaken by woke capital. All of these things that, that we can recognize are happening inside our country. You can't do that if you no longer have a country. And so national security has to be strong. I want, I, I disagree with the Biden administration on all kinds of things. I definitely want them to prevail over the Russians and to, to, and to, and to deter the Russians from attacking NATO. And I, and I want the Biden administration to, to help maintain um, some semblance of peace in Europe and get us back to re return us to a position of peace and not have this war spread out into NATO um, countries. And that's because he's still, he's my president, it's my government, and I love my country and I believe my country is worth fighting for. And, and so that sentiment has to be the same um, in, with Australia. Um, perhaps our, one of our key, if not the key ally with Japan that we're going to need, that we have to rely on to be able to deter Chinese aggression in the Indo-Pacific. Um, but how do I see China viewing the Russia thing? You know, I think that they are learning. They're using this as, this is a learning exercise. How, how are the Ukrainians fighting and how is the West arming the Ukrainians? And will that translate over to a situation with Taiwan? And there's plenty of differences there. Obviously, the geography makes it much more of a challenge. Um, but but they're but they're learning. You know what what kind of sanctions are the is the United States and our NATO countries allies willing to do to Russia? But Russia is the poor country relative to China, and you know a lot of these companies and countries um, are have been much tougher on Russia in a way that we haven't even seen them even come close to, to what they're willing to do against China. And we know that China's committing genocide. We know that China has the world's most sophisticated surveillance state, that they suppress free speech and the freedom of a religion. And yet it hasn't really impacted um, corporations and other countries to the, the degree that I would like to have seen them so far. And so maybe China's saying, look, they're willing to do all of this to Russia, but they wouldn't do this to us. And so um, it's hard to know exactly um, how the Chinese are, are calculating this. And frankly, maybe, maybe this is waking up the West to say, oh, look, now if China's going to help Russia and back the Russians, maybe China's not a good bet either. And that we're going to have to make hard choices now about, you know, um, reshoring our critical supply chains and that kind of thing from China, that these are the decisions that we need to be making now. We need to be getting Taiwan all of the weapon systems that they need to defend themselves to deter an invasion. You know, I think this is going to be a learning moment for, for all of us. Um, I hope it will. It should be. Um, but we need to make sure that we're learning the right lessons and that we're being shrewd and thinking ahead um, better and more effectively than what our enemies are. And, and that's a concern of mine, but I think that's the task before us. Learn the right lessons, and, and we need to be making sure that, 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 that China can calculates every day that today is not the day that I'm going to try to take Taiwan by force. And, um, and that's, that's what the United States must do with our allies, but we can't do it by ourselves. We need the Australians, the Japanese, we need India. And, and so we need to you know, really think carefully about statecraft and get this right in order to make sure that, that um, the post-World War II and post-Cold War um, order 
led by the West remains. Um, I have five children, so a person can't be too cynical and pessimistic if they're going to have five children. <laughs> and, and so I, you know, I certainly think it's worth worth fighting for. And um, we just have a complex task before us. But uh, there, like I said, there are encouraging signs and, and we just must press on. Well, Rebecca, you've given us a marvelous hours coaching in how to think through these things. Uh, I admire the depth of your mind and uh, thought enormously and uh, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I, I'm sure our listeners and viewers will agree. Well, thank you so much. It was uh, wonderful to have this time with you. I hope we can do it again soon. Thank you. You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.